Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I am your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is not-so-golden handcuffs, and we will be discussing Professor Anat Alon-Beck's research on stock options. I'm joined by Anat and her colleague, John Livingstone. I'll start by letting them introduce themselves further. First, John. Thanks for having us, Carlos. Um, I really appreciate the time, and um, I'm John Livingstone. I moonlight as a professor at the Haas School of Business during summer sessions and during the year, I'm a research fellow with NotBEC. We conduct all sorts of research on complex corporate governance and securities law questions, and I'm very excited to be here. All right, and now Anat. Thank you so much for having us today. I'm a huge fan of your work in the show, so thank you. Uh, so my name is Anatelon Beck. I am an assistant professor of law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law where I teach courses on business organizations, contracts, this year also mergers and acquisitions. So Elon Musk is keeping me busy. <laughs> and as of yesterday, Adam Newman. Um, and I mostly write on uh, tech companies. These are private companies like unicorns that are worth over a billion dollars. And uh, I'm currently also serving as the chair of uh, the academic uh, subcommittee of the American Business Association. So if there's any law students in the audience or lawyers that want to join uh, the Committee on Venture Capital or Private Equity, let me know. And the uh, WLS Executive Committee on Practical Skills, that's the uh, American Law School Association. Um, and uh, we're now planning the annual meeting. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me. And, you know, Anat is an expert on unicorns, these privately held corporations over a billion dollars. And I'm excited to get into her work about stock options since so many people take stock options instead of cash, especially when they work for tech companies. All right. Now, John, let's start with you and get into these basics. First, what are stock options and why are they such a big deal in compensation packages? Oh. I mean, let's let's state with the name, you know, being obvious. Stock options just that they're options to buy stocks, usually at a fixed price, usually at a discounted price. Um, they're not going to invest right away, meaning you can't purchase them right away, but they're designed to incentivize employees to continue to work for the company. But as well, they're they're designed to, you know, tie employees' wealth to the success of the company. As the value of the company increases, the value of their shares increase, and so they're successful. And generally, this has been a great model. It allows the companies to succeed and the employees to succeed together. It allows for, it used to at least, allow for the alignment of, um, you know, incentives between founders and common employees. They would all hold the same shares. And we would see success as, as the companies grew. And then eventually, when a liquidity event happens, like an IPO or an acquisition, you know, employees would be able to cash out and make a lot of money. They choose stock options over cash because a lot of these tech companies, at least at the initial stages, they're cash strapped. They don't have any cash to give to their employees, but they have to be able to pay these very talented engineers, very talented 
you know, tech developers um, with something. So they give them equity within the company. All right. And how much do you pay for stock options? Like, how is it a deal for the employees? So they're going to purchase at a below market rate, whatever, whatever a venture capital fund, something like that is going to come in, they're going to pay at a lower rate. Um, it, it's going to be negotiated depending on the employees, depending on the stage, depending on how many um, options are being granted. And quite frankly, different grants occur at different times. You may get different values for your stock options as the company evolves and grows. And, you know, one more feature that companies allow sometimes is that instead of paying cash, you can subtract the value of, of the cost of it out of, you know, the proceeds when you cash in. That's correct. And I should also say that there's there's a difference between stock options and stock grants. Stock grants are outright issuance of shares that typically happens at the very early stage to the initial employees of a company. Stock options come later on where the companies do have to you know, they do expect some cash or some discount on, on how much cash they're giving their employees in exchange for these, these shares. Um, but, you know, we, sometimes we see a mix of, of options and grants as well. Awesome. Now, Anat, people generally think these are awesome things, right? You know, if you were at Google on day one, you're a millionaire right now. If you're at Amazon in the early days, you're a millionaire right now because you got stock options. You know, it could be anyone from the secretary on up to the execs who were able to cash in, make a lot of money on Google and Amazon. You know, they give some employees the skin in the game. If things go well, employees can get a windfall, but not every company is Google or Amazon. So is there ever a time when employees don't get the benefit of taking a lower salary for the stock options? Yes. So this is really the million dollar question, right? And it's part of the American dream, at least for the past 50 years. It's it's a practice that's very common in Silicon Valley, and we read about it in the news all the time. These tech startups where employees joined early on, their options weren't worth anything. And then imagine all of a sudden you're a unicorn, you're worth over a billion dollars. I wouldn't sleep at night. I would be thinking, oh, my God, where do I spend this money? The problem <laughs> is, okay, the problem is it's not real until there's a liquidity event. We call it an exit, Okay. So as long as the, the company is private, you can't really do much with this. So you're worth a lot of money on paper. You just agreed, for example, for a salary cut or to get less than what you can. On paper, you're worth so much money because you have these options, even if you exercise them. Remember, an option is just a contract that allows you to become a stockholder in the future, right? You have to exercise. You have to pay. So let's say you exercise. You just paid money for these options. You also have a tax event. So you might have paid taxes on millions of dollars. But what if tomorrow the valuation goes down? What if the company closes down? What if there's a fire sale? A fire sale is, for example, it's sold all of a sudden. What happens? You just pay taxes. You pay to exercise. And you're never going to really enjoy this money. So it's not going to materialize. And you're going to end up paying to work for this company where you accepted these options and you exercise them. You might've even taken a mortgage or a loan to pay for this. We're talking about a lot of money that people don't have handy and, and you know, Boulevard of broken dreams, right? All of a sudden you wake up and you're broke. Now you have to pay, you have to pay for something. Um, and more than that, just think about, uh, I, I see all these initiatives and by the way, equity is, is a good thing. I want to see more employees share in equity. Okay. Own stock, but, 
In private companies, always remember it's problematic. You have to ask, if you're an employee and you're watching this, ask, what's the valuation so you understand? Know the risk that it can always be what we call it underwater, which means if it goes down, it's not even worth it for you to exercise. And the second thing is, is there going to be an exit opportunity? Is there going to be a liquidity opportunity? Without a liquidity opportunity, don't. Don't do it because you're taking a huge risk. This is not legal advice, right? Just think about this. If you exercise something and you're taking this risk, don't be surprised that you just paid for something that would never, that might never materialize. If it does materialize, good for you. If it doesn't, then you still have to pay the tax and you still had to pay this hefty fine. All right. Now, what happens if you quit before, like, let's say your options vested, but you quit before an exit event and you quit without exercising your option and purchasing the stock. What happens to all those years when you took a pay cut? This is the hottest topic in Silicon Valley. Hottest because people are fighting over this. Lawyers are making a lot of money trying to come up with solutions. So usually there's like a 90 day period, sometimes even 60 or 30 days where you have to exercise. You have to, you have to pay. Otherwise they expire. And this is why this is such an important investment decision as an employee. It's an important investment decision because like I said, you're taking a big risk if you're exercising, right? You have a one month or three months to make that decision. And what happens if it expires, it's going to go back to that option pool. Okay. So if you don't exercise, that's it. I mean, you're not going to see that anymore. And there, there are reasons for that. Uh, there are reasons of why companies don't want you to hold on to the options and, and they don't allow that through contracts. Right. So you quit before Google becomes Google or Amazon becomes Amazon. You're one of those super early employees who left early. If you didn't buy your options within 30 or 60 or 90 days, depending on what your employment contract and your shareholder rights plan says, you lost the money. But if you work for the company that never becomes the next Google and you do exercise your options and they crater, let's say you're at WeWork, right? Like you're exactly. Really, exactly. Yeah, yes. so. yeah. 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 You're at WeWork and you exercised your option. Well, now they, you know, they never IPO'd and they went bankrupt. Now we've kind of talked around something like we've used the lawyer terms. We've used unicorn, et cetera. You know, is this a bigger problem at certain types of companies? Like what's the difference between having stock options at like Exxon versus having stock options at your startup? So I think this is a particular problem that companies, the longer their company is private um, and the larger they grow in size, that kind of magic combination of we're a big company, but we're staying private, that's that's where things start to get dicey for option holders. If you have options at Exxon, Exxon's a publicly traded company. You can exercise as soon as you exercise, boom, you can sell, you can see an instant profit that day. Yeah, you got to pay, you know, the short-term capital gains tax, but it is what it is. Um, as the companies stay private longer and grow long, you know, grow larger and larger, you know, possibly reaching into the unicorns or the decacorns or things like that, whatever we're calling the, the even larger unicorns these days, um, you know, you start to see an increasing amount of complexity in their capital structures. You start to see multiple layers of preferred shares. You get to see these hybrid structures. You get to see large, sophisticated investors coming in that can protect 
their interests, protect their you know, rights in the event of a fire sale and things like that. And the employees have a decreasing amount of leverage. Yeah, they're the, you know, the human capital behind the scenes that are making these valuations reflective of anything. But the large investors don't care about that. You know, if I'm a venture capital fund, I'm going to come in and structure so I get paid out first in the event of an acquisition, in the event of a liquidation, in the event of a fire sale. And, and then the employees as common holders, because most options allow you to purchase common stock, not any type of preferred, they're left holding whatever's left. And sometimes that's nothing. I mean, we've seen instances, I think we'll talk about it later, where employees have ended up paying to work for their own companies. And that's true lunacy. Um, and the, the complexity in the capital structure allows companies to, to continue to hide information and prevent employees from finding information. Anat and I wrote another piece recently on Section 12G of the Securities Act, which is sort of the, the mirror to what we're going to be talking about under Delaware law, that compels companies to provide information once they grow to a certain size and number of shareholders. And in 2012, when the Jobs Act passed, we removed employees who were granted options from the number of employees that are being counted to when companies have to make mandatory disclosures. So now, you know, companies can grow exponentially in size, nearly, and continue to have as many employees. They can become the size of Amazon or Google or things like that from a number of employees' basis and not make any disclosures at all under federal law to these employees. So these employees are shooting in the dark with no potential for an exit event. And, you know, who knows how much the valuation is going to be worth tomorrow. Things can change in an instant. Now, Anat, give us some examples of companies that are still private and huge. Like, is Uber still private? I can't remember. Um, Uber, not anymore. But we have over a thousand unicorns currently in the world, okay? We have over a thousand unicorns. And they employ anywhere from 100 employees to sometimes 10,000, okay? The largest companies, you can think about Facebook, you can think about, uh, you know, most of the tech companies that um, people work for, they're, they're hip to go work for, and a lot of the young millennials want to work for them. But what's happening now is actually a lot of the millennials have caught up and they understand, wait a minute, maybe it's too risky. And 50% of them, according to an accounting firm, one of the largest accounting firms, they did a, a study and they showed that more than 50% don't even exercise their options because they're really afraid of this risk. Another thing is that if it's already an established firm, right? John mentioned the fact that they're staying, staying private longer. So if the company is no longer this nascent startup, right? Now it's a unicorn. People who come in, they know they're coming into a unicorn. So what they're doing, they, they're vistifying their investments. They stay for a year, exercise whatever they exercise, then jump to the next startup, do the same thing. And now they're building this portfolio thinking, okay, maybe, maybe I'll make some money somewhere. But it's not good for the firm, right? If you think about that, why? Because, and, and for people who stay to work for the firm, why would I stay and work so that somebody else that only came for a year exercise their option, now move on to the competitor, I'm going to continue working hard so they will benefit? So it causes a lot of resentment, right? Especially with the 
earlier hires are saying, wait a minute, I'm stuck here because it's very expensive for me to exercise, right? They're locking me in with these golden handcuffs. Later people come in, they're much younger, they're not as invested as me, and they're just jumping onto the next startup. It's unfair, okay? So it's causing all these problems, also reputational harm, right? If you look on Paysay and, and other websites, people are complaining, wait a minute, Okay, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. I'm stuck with the firm. I'm afraid to resign because I'll then I'll have to make this investment. And if I'm really invested, if I've been there for several years, we're talking a lot, a lot of money to leave on the table. And if I decide to, to move, what am I going to do? How am I going to come up with the cash to pay for this? I'll have to mortgage my house. But then what if it never pays out, right? And we've seen, for example, there's a case, there's Goods Technology. I always mention that. Goods was a company where employees believed so much in the company, they even went on to secondary markets. So now we have these secondary markets where you can buy stock of these private companies. And not only the exercise, they went and they bought more stock. One day, the company was sold in a fire sale. And it's, it's well known in the industry. Okay, lawyers know this really well. And that is when parties negotiate the price, right? When we sell the company, we call it a fire sale. We have to sell it quickly. Something happened and we're going to sell it quickly. People are going to negotiate according to the preferred. The preferred are the investors, right? So you have this human capital, the employees, that usually hold common, right? John mentioned that. You have investors, sophisticated parties. They are represented by counsel, by lawyers. They have preferred. The way that they'll usually negotiate the deal for the sale, the price, is that the preferred are going to get whatever they invested. Guess what common's going to get? Zero. Zero. In most cases, they're not going to get their money back. Who is the zero? It's the employees, rank and file employees. Now, I'm not talking about senior management because something else that happened, they get paid money <laughs> during this fire sale. Okay. So we're not talking about senior management. We don't have to worry about senior management. This is rank and file. Okay. Wow. And, and unfortunately, that's what's, that's what's going on. And it's known. It's always been the case, okay, with sales of these companies, even before these unicorns. This is something that is, uh, is known that, you know, that's why you're taking a risk. Well, and and just, oh, go ahead, John. Go ahead. I think we're also reaching the point of ridiculousness with, with some of these large companies. I mean, SpaceX is still considered to be a unicorn. SpaceX <laughs> is a proven company. It's, I think, the second most valuable private unicorn in the world, valued at over $100 billion. ByteDance, who owns TikTok, is worth, you know, almost a third of a trillion dollars. You can't argue that that is a small, scrappy little startup anymore. That is a proven company with a proven product that is staying private because they're not incentivized to go public. They're incentivized to stay private because they can continue to do these huge, you know, $100 million plus rounds of funding, and they don't need to go public. You know, the founders and and the, the other large investors, they can have liquidity when they want to. And the, you know, the early stage employees who are locked in with these options are now along for the ride at the whims of when the board decides to go public. Right. And, you know, when it comes to something like SpaceX, it may never go public, right? Like, exactly. You know, right? yeah. Elon's it's, pretty determined to not deal with the SEC any more than he has to. I think the SEC is pretty determined not to deal with Elon as well, <laughs> as no more than they have to. Right, right, right. And so, you know, I, I had never thought about the reverse, the perverse incentives um, that essentially, you know, that's why I say not so golden handcuffs, because we're talking about 
We're not talking about senior executives anymore. We're talking about like the secretaries and the janitors and the, you know, the person in the mailroom who has gotten these stock options, possibly taking, you know, a lower salary, maybe banking their retirement on it. And then their company never goes public and they don't have the capital to exercise their options if they switch jobs. And now we're seeing these founders also have these sort of hybrid shares where they behave like common and give them voting power and even voting multipliers, but they're treated as preferred for tax purposes and for liquidity purposes. So now the founders are really playing both sides where they can continue to have voting power and outvote their own employees, but they can also still get out, you know, as needed. And that's, that's you know, making a bad situation even worse. Yeah. Because yeah. They're not, they don't have an incentive to protect the employees. They should, right? In theory, you should. You should care. And I'm sure they do. I'm not saying they don't. But they care about their interests. And their interests are this. Before this phenomena, what John is talking about is these FF preferred shares. 90% of founders, if the company went public, and by the way, that used to be within four years. So after four years, if you're a tech company, you would do an IPO. There's a liquidity and employees will get paid. You can trade your stock once you exercise it on an exchange in a market. And you're happy. You want to stay, you stay. You want to go somewhere else, you go somewhere else. Today, they're staying private for longer than 11 years. Okay. No more four years. Now it's longer than 11 years that you're stuck with this company. Now, why is this? Why are we seeing this? Because founders in the past, 90% are not Mark Zuckerberg. 90%, once the company goes public, the CEO goes home. And they're bringing in a new CEO, one that can deal with public markets, right? We have regulation. We need somebody with experience. And so the CEO would change. And you could understand why CEO and senior management don't want to go home. They want to stay private as long as possible. Plus, there's also proprietary information. They don't want to disclose information on the company, right? So as long as they can continue to raise money and raise money and raise money, why would they go public? Why would they be subject to scrutiny that I can criticize them, that John can criticize them, that you can criticize them, right? right? We can open up their financial statement and see, wait a minute, where are they spending money? Why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they filing this? So, so you know, it makes sense. Well, I would like to now get into some more details about these employment contracts and what Anat's research has revealed. Um, so we've generally got two types of contracts when people get stock options. Um, You could have a general employment contract that you sign, and then you can have like a shareholder's rights plan that governs your options. Now, Anat, can you give us a summary of the big problem that you found, you know, between these two documents and what it is that, you know, employees are signing over when they simply sign on the dotted line and accept their job? Sure. So there's something really exciting. I don't know if I should say exciting. I was excited and upset about it. Okay, so let's just, let's say it this way. I was excited and upset. I read. I usually read. I'll uh, the Wall Street Journal, and then I read this article. An employee is using this obscure law in Delaware to open up a company's books and records. And I'm thinking to myself, Wait a minute, what's obscure about Delaware law? I teach Delaware law, right? So I see it's about Section 220, which means Section 220. If you're a stockholder, meaning. If you hold stock, not an option, stock in a company, in a private company, you have this right. Not, it's not an absolute right 
to go to the company and say, hey, I want to see if there's mismanagement. I want to see how much my stock is worth. Open up your books and records. Let me take a look because I own stock. I have a right, right? I, I paid for this. I'm an investor. doesn't matter if you're a human capital investor or a capital investor. I'm an investor. Open up. I want to see what's going on. Because with public companies, we can see, right? There's disclosures. There's analysts that follow with private. I don't know what's going on. And so what's been happening is we're seeing this trend and think about it. it makes sense. We have all these discussions about inequality, about what's going on with employee wages, that they're stagnant with employee rights. Well, even the most powerful employees, which are tech employees today, right? These sophisticated employees, what I found that uh, there's also a deterioration in their rights. And let me explain why. So since 2012, according to our federal laws, okay, the Jobs Act passed. And before the Jobs Act, if I am a, a, this company, this unicorn, if I meet a certain threshold of employees, it used to be um, 500, I would have to provide disclosures to employees, okay? I would have to tell them what's going on so they know uh, if they hold stock options, um, what's going on with the valuation, what's their work. Today, we don't count them anymore, okay? We don't provide disclosures to them anymore. And what happened was, this, this employee in the startup, it was called Domo, which is actually, it's funny, it's a Utah company. I would expect it to happen in Silicon Valley. But it happened in Utah. Uh, wanted to know, wait, I need to make this investment decision. He wanted to leave. And I want to know, should I exercise my options? Okay. So he exercised, let's say he exercised just a little bit. So he becomes a stockholder. Then he knows that the company is incorporated in Delaware and the Delaware law wait a minute, I'm a stockholder, it's a private company, let's use Section 220 and make a demand. Company, I demand you open up books and records. I want to see what's going on so I can decide about the rest, right? I want to know what the valuation of my options so that I can decide if to exercise them. What do you think the company did? Said, no, I'm not opening it up. I don't care about Delaware law. So he went to court, okay? Guess what happened? They settled. Why did they settle? I'm not surprised they settled because the lawyers who represented the company probably didn't want a decision where the court says, hey, you have no choice. You have to open up, right? This is a private company. And then the Wall Street Journal covered this case. And imagine all the lawyers, right, who deal with corporate law and represent these firms are saying, wait a minute, we're going to have a ton of lawsuits on our hands. Why? Because think about it. Employees don't have these information rights under the federal laws. We have this Delaware law, right? This corporate law. It's, by the way, it's mandatory. You can't waive it in the articles or the bylaws. And, and it says if you're a stockholder, all they have to do is exercise one option. Okay? They become a stockholder. If you're a stockholder, you can ask to open up books and records. By the way, I should say one more thing. In, in Delaware, it's not an absolute right. You have to show proper purpose. For example, you can't just do that because you want to steal proprietary information and you want to compete, okay? But valuation is, has been recognized in other cases to be something you know, important in, in these types of litigation. Let's come up with contractual innovation. What can we do to protect the company so they don't have to deal with employees that now are going to open up and who knows what they're going to find? Are they going to find mismanagement? What are they going to find when they open up books and records? So what did they do? They came up with a waiver. It's called 
a waiver of statutory inspection rights. Why statutory? Because it's by statute. As a stockholder, you have this inspection, right? Um, to uh, inspect the company's books and records. And it's not surprising um, that after Lomo, there's an uptick of these companies that are adopting this waiver. Okay. And I saw law firm memos. And more than that, two years ago in 2020, on the cusp of 2021, the National Venture Capital Association, it's an association where lawyers sit there and they try to standardize investment documents, right? To make deal flow easy, to lower transaction costs. They adopted this language in their model documents as well. What does it show you? It shows you that they're trying to standardize this language. Now, let me put on two hats, okay? One, from the company's perspective, I understand the need, these are private companies, to try to protect proprietary information, okay? I understand that. But lawyers, you're not going to have this issue if you provide employees with the information that they deserve, they used to get, okay? So what's happening is they're not getting that information for federal laws, and now they're trying to prevent them from getting this information to our corporate law. And how they're doing it is there's a gap. So like I said, under our corporate law, this is mandatory. It cannot be waived by the company, but we don't know what the court's going to say. What if parties contracted out of it? So now it's contract law, right? So what if they do it through contract, not in the articles of organization, not in the bylaws, not in the charter, but through contract. Now, if it's sophisticated parties, in other cases, they're represented, the court's accepted that departure with regards to under other mandatory laws, okay? But to me, it's problematic here, and I asked the court not to do this here. Why? Because, these, first of all, as I told you, these employees are not represented most of the times. They don't even know they're waiving this. They don't know what they're signing. Sometimes they just get a link. They don't even get a copy of the agreement. They get a link, oh, we've updated your plan, your option plan. And you would think, okay, great, they updated the plan. What do I care? Well, you care because you just waive your statutory inspection, right? A very, very powerful right that stockholders hold, okay? And if you are sophisticated, if you are represented by counsel, I guarantee to you that your lawyer is not going to make you just, you know, roll over and sign something like this, okay? Sophisticated parties are probably not going to accept that. Well, and I think, you know, the, there are multiple problems here. One, if it's in your employment contract, like you're at the point, you've accepted the job, you're about to sign on the dotted line, your stock options are why you're taking the job. Are you going to read this? Are you going to read your employment agreement and the stockholders right plan in detail? Um, some of these also, um, and this is legal under contract law, you know, it happens with our bank accounts every time we log in. Some of these are written such that if you take your next paycheck, you've agreed to this next shareholder rights plan, right? If you exercise your stock options at all, you've agreed to the new shareholders rights plan. So you're, you know, the law doesn't require you to actually read the contract to agree to the contract. You can act and perform and accept a contract. Now, John, let's go into a little bit more detail about what exactly happens when you give up inspection rights. You know, Anat kind of talked about this federal state symbiosis but you know when you when you refuse and you accidentally give up section 220 what have you lost i think you're giving up three three important things here first and foremost you're giving up the potential for liquidity 
And and we'll come back to that in a minute when we address the other two. The the other two that we've got that you're giving up most obviously is information. You're giving up the potential to gain knowledge. And knowledge is power in a variety of things, but particularly when it comes to knowing whether or not to exercise these options. And quite frankly, you're also giving up flexibility to leave your job. You know, you may suddenly realize, oh my God, I'm working for a unicorn that might be worth billions one day. I might be a millionaire overnight. Do I leave? Do I not? I'm tying all of my wealth to the potential of this company. And whether or not you have the ability to come up with the cash to exercise if you want to leave, you're really all of a sudden being handcuffed to the fate of this company. And that's that's not a great position. We want people to be able to change jobs when they want to. If they have a toxic work environment, you know, they're moving for whatever reason. You know, if you want to be able to leave your company, you should be able to without having to face the loss of all or a significant portion of your wealth. Um, most obviously, you're giving up that 220 information and the ability to seek information under statutory law that everybody else, you know, in a non-unicorn or non you know, big private company situation has the right to. And all of this kind of builds to you don't have the option for liquidity. I think 220, you know, waivers is just a piece of the puzzle of you're being asked to give up your ability to liquidate and get out, not on the company's terms. You know, when a company does an IPO or a company does an acquisition, that's on the company's terms. It's not like the share, you know, the employee shareholders get to say, yes, we want to do an IPO. We want to do a liquidation event now. You know, Elon Musk isn't going to take a phone call from a line engineer at SpaceX and, you know, and say, well, you know, because Bob wanted me to do an, an IPO, I guess SpaceX is going to go public. That's that's not how this is going to work. And in combination with that, you know, we now have these secondary markets that are not talked about earlier, where employees can purchase additional shares, but they can also sell their shares in theory, right? I mean, it, it markets work both ways that way. But these contracts, when you know you're waiving your information rights, how do you know how to price the shares that you're putting up on these markets? And quite frankly, in the contracts, in addition to the waivers, where you're coming up with your own valuation you're probably restricted from doing just that anyways. Even if you can get the information, even if you can come up with a valuation, you may not be able to sell. You're locked in and the company may be the one to say, okay, this is when you can sell, this is how you can sell, this is to whom you can sell, and this is the price. And guess what? We're going to be the ones to facilitate it. You can't do any of this. We're going to restrict how much you get for your own property, really. I mean, that's what this is. This is your assets that you're selling on your own accord, and somebody else is dictating the price and the method by which you sell it. And there are legitimate reasons for that. Don't get me wrong. Companies have an incentive to have a relatively clean cap table. They have an incentive to make sure that you're not having too many shareholders to avoid running afoul of certain securities laws. You know, these Shares very met, might be restricted securities under under federal securities law, and that that's a whole headache for who you're selling to. There are legitimate reasons to restrict whom you're selling to and how, but there isn't, in my mind, a legitimate reason to deny information about what you hold to these investors. Yes, and this is where I think we should separate the two. 
right? So, so I think on the one hand, and I and I just want to make that clear. I completely agree with John, and I and I also said that in my, one of my earliest pieces from 2018, uh, and that is in unicorn stock options. Really, to the company saying, I wouldn't advise a company to just allow anybody to sell. It can create fraud on the markets. You know, how do I know as an employee what's the valuation, especially now when there's no information? Okay, so it works both ways. But what I'm saying is, let's put liquidity on the one hand and information rights on the other. It's okay. Don't let them liquidate unless you, the company, comes up with liquidity plans. Why? We want it clean. We want it according to the law. We want to prevent fraud in the markets. That's fine. But give information, okay? Don't prevent information from employees. Allow them. If they're showing you signs that I'm tired, I'm taking all this risk, allow them have, and I know some firms are, have started to do this, have, it's called private liquidity plans, Okay. Do the right thing as a large company. You're employing so many people. Have these private liquidity plans where you disclose the valuation, when you help the employees, when you make sure that things are done properly according to our securities laws, okay? Because you can do that. Don't just take power from people. Also empower people. And I think as an employee, ask yourself, do the due diligence before you join a company. What is the culture? What kind of company am I joining? Is this a company that's going to empower me? Is this a company that cares about me in the long run? Okay. So I think these are some of the things that you can ask. And, and Carlos, you mentioned it. I know it's hard, right? You don't want to look like a troublemaker when you come in, right? And you don't want to defy the culture. And you're sometimes afraid to ask these questions, but it's important. It's part of your future. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And if somebody doesn't want to hire you because of that, then you probably made the right decision by not joining that firm. Now, we've kind of talked around another issue and not really explained it. And we've talked about the different types of shareholders and investors. And in the article, you mentioned, Anat, that not all shareholders are equal. Are there particular types of investors who are harmed more by these shareholder inspection waivers? And has the use expanded of these like restricted, you know, no inspection right shares? Has it expanded beyond employees in these unicorns? That's a great question. I honestly, it could be wrong, but I haven't seen sophisticated parties agreeing to this. So the language and the model documents are pretty broad, which means that sophisticated parties can perhaps negotiate for this. But why would anybody sophisticated agree to not just value their stock, but also prevent access to, to check if there's mismanagement? Think about all the fraud we've had recently, right? Think about Elizabeth Holmes, uh, uh, Theranos, all these companies. Why? With everything that's going on, there's there's so many cases of fraud. There's so many cases of mismanagement. Why would you give up this right to um, access books and records, to check what's going on, to do your due diligence as an investor in these companies? So I doubt that, it, that sophisticated investors are going to go for it, especially because those are represented by counsel who know what they're doing. Okay, so unfortunately, what we're seeing is we're seeing this bargaining inequality, right? We see the powerful ones, the represented ones, they're going to protect themselves. I'm not worried about them. The ones who are not protected, who come in, right? Rank and file employees, those are the ones that are probably going to be signing this without even knowing that they gave up anything detrimental, right? Or agreeing to do this because, you know, maybe they just graduated from school. They have loans to pay. They need to start, you know, making money and they have this dream 
We've been feeding people with this dream, which, by the way, until recently was very successful and, and, and good, that maybe your dream's going to come true and, and the company's going to go and do an IPO because you need to have an initial public offering. By the way, people, to, to get this, you need to have initial public offering or some sort of a private IPO, which is a, this, this company liquidity plan. And, and let me just say one more thing. This year, the SEC also restricted some of the trade of these uh, option contracts, and rightfully so, on secondary markets. So if, it, if, if we even saw this happening before, now the SEC is trying to restrict the ability. So I, I doubt that we're going to see more in the future. And, and again, for good reasons, because we talked about all this fraud that can happen. Think about the, the, the investors who are buying this. You could be buying something that's worth nothing tomorrow. Right. Right. Again, and, you know, I'd love to hear you talk more about the secondary market, John. You know, let's say, yeah. you know, I want to buy some stock in SpaceX or I want to buy some stock options in SpaceX, which is a private company. Is that possible through these secondary markets? Uh, so uh, that's a great question. I think yes and no. I think the company is not going to allow somebody like, you know, you or me or not to do that relatively easily. I will say that it is pretty easy to acquire accredited investor status, which is the status that you're going to need under federal securities laws to avoid triggering some of the, 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 you know, the limits when it comes to making disclosures. Companies are incentivized to make sure that as many of their investors as possible are considered to be accredited. And those thresholds passed originally in the early 1980s and haven't changed since. We've spaced that status on education, sophistication, you know, CPAs, accountants, and things like that. They can pretty easily obtain it, but it's also obtained based on your personal net worth. A million dollars in 1980 is worth a lot more money than a million dollars today, but those numbers still are the same amount for income thresholds. That's crazy. And so you have the ability for accredited investors from an income perspective who may not actually be as sophisticated as what we think they are, purchasing or having the ability to purchase these shares and even these stock option contracts on secondary markets, and they're now along for the ride. So I think we we now kind of have to separate two categories of sophisticated investors versus, you know, technically sophisticated investors. Yeah, you're sophisticated for the purposes of federal securities law, but it's pretty easy to have a million dollars worth of income stream or $5 million worth of assets in, in this day and age. Most people in California have a home that's worth over a million dollars. You know, let's say you have a couple that you've inherited from your parents or something like that. Now you're worth over $5 million, but you don't actually know how to read through these contracts. You don't know what you are buying. And I think Anant had an excellent point when it came to employees kind of getting around the restrictions on selling the shares themselves. They were selling their contracts. They were selling their stock options themselves, the rights to purchase the shares on these secondary markets. And I think that's where we're going to see these new 220 waivers expanding into that area. If the SEC does allow, you know, some limited trading on these option contracts, is that right going to be preserved if the contract is sold to a third party? If I'm the company, obviously, I would want to make sure that whoever I'm, I'm selling those options to or whoever the employee is selling those options to, I want to make sure that, you know, there is no ability for the new shareholder, the non-employee shareholder, 
to gain information under 220. Otherwise, you know, then the employee is going to do, you know, a behind the scenes under the table deal. Here, you know, I'm a tech employee. I'll sell, you know, five shares of options to you. You sue under Delaware law and do me a good solid favor and get the information that I wanted anyways. You know, that's the workaround that companies are going to want. Well, and I could just see a competitor who wants inside information, buying up exactly. a company stock options, getting the intel. And then- so I, would, I would say there that even if the Delaware courts weigh in on this, and I think they're going to have to at some point, and, and we could talk about that in the solutions, but I think I think the Delaware court is going to allow employees to value their shares. If a competitor was going to do that, I think a Delaware court would probably say, look, that's not a legitimate purpose. And that's that's what we always have to remember under 220 claims. We have to have a legitimate, we have to have a proper purpose to do it. Valuation, yes. Stealing proprietary information, maybe not so much. Right. Well, and we've seen with Elon Musk and Twitter sometimes uh, valuation is uh, essential information yes. and the ability oh, to yeah. value, right? And also right. rights, right? Now, all of a sudden, he wants all this information on the bots and God knows what, and he didn't even do the due diligence before, right? This is, right. we're talking about a public company and right. these are private companies, right? So, all so right, now, and not, not, I'd like to pivot. We've only got a few minutes um, or we've got some time. We've only got like 10 minutes or so. So, in the article, you propose some solutions. Um, you run through suggestions for Delaware legislation, solutions for the Delaware courts, and then solutions for practitioners. So I'd love for you to run through what your ideas are for getting employees this protection back. Sure. Thank you. So first, with regards to the courts, and um, I think it's so important. Again, these are mandatory laws. And in other areas, like appraisal rights and others, what we've seen is the courts actually accept these private bargaining agreements, okay? So we, they accept contracts between parties. But again, in the other uh, agreements, these are sophisticated parties. These are not, employees are not, I don't consider them, doesn't matter how much they're worth, doesn't mean they're sophisticated, okay? Even if they get a high salary, okay? They're not represented, they're not sophisticated. So what I'm hoping is for Delaware to make it clear that these waivers are not okay. They're not legit, they're not good practice, and tell lawyers you cannot put them in the agreements, okay? And basically not to allow parties to get out of these mandatory rules that we've had for many, many years, and it's part of our tradition in corporate law. Okay, that's one with regards to the court. With regards to the legislator, and I know it's a hard shot, but maybe even take stock option holders into account. First, by the way, they can say that they will allow this workaround. I say don't. Please don't. Don't allow a contractual workaround. Okay, that's one. Second, please take stockholders into account. Not just Stock option holders, not just stockholders, right? Remember, the st- you're a stockholder after you exercise, so you already had to take this financial risk. Think about all these people, protect them. And, and you can limit it to these situations like employees, okay? You, you can really curve it. And practitioners, you can avoid all this mess if you do the good thing, which I used to do when I used to practice, like, I don't know, 17 years ago. Provide information, send people the contract. They should know what they're signing, okay? Do the right thing because you're also going to be representing your client by thinking that you're doing something good for your client. You might be causing 
a headache for your client in the long term because they won't be able to retain, maintain, engage these people if they're going to be complaining about them, right? Who's going to want to work for these companies, okay? You have to look at the entire picture. And I'll say one more thing, and that is John and I discovered in a new piece that just came out, a new phenomena where venture capital firms are not giving this candy to their preferential clients, and this candy is the ability to directly invest in these companies. And, and that way, these companies are staying private longer. And I know it's on the SEC's agenda to really do this disclosure revolution, right? We need more disclosures. We need these companies to disclose more. The, the, the longer they stay private, the more I think we're going to see these problems. And think about all these calls to democratize access to private markets, right? Because not everybody, less than 50% of Americans even own stock. Less than them have access to these private markets. Where are all the games now? I told you there are over a thousand companies in the private markets. So you have these markets where people can't even play in. And for good reasons, right? Why don't we want investors in these markets? Because we have a symmetry of information. We don't know what's going on. We can't tell if they're good companies, bad companies, if there's fraud, there's mismanagement. They're not subject to a lot of the laws, right? And so what's happening is what we just recently discovered is there's all these new tricks that allow these companies to stay private longer. And more than that, to continue with the inequality, because I won't get that. I won't get this phone call saying, hey, do you want to invest in this? No, but somebody is going to. And, and, and so it's, it's very unfair that we don't all get this opportunity to participate in these markets. So I understand that, but the solution to me is easier. And that is these companies should go public. We should encourage them to go public. What we've been doing is we've been allowing them to stay private longer. Well, and I would just love to emphasize your 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 wealth inequality point because the way that a lot of people get into the stock market is stock options in retirement. And so when we make the stock option component unfavorable and we keep companies private, you're really keeping, you know, working class people out of investing in the stock market. You're limiting the ability to generate wealth. You know, I gave the Exxon employee example. Lots of folks have built their retirement and, you know, expanded their wealth by getting stock options in a company like Exxon or Shell or, you know, other big public company as a part of their compensation, in addition to getting, you know, to invest in the stock market with their retirement funds. When we keep all this capital in the private market, it's keeping all that capital from employees and from everyday people like us who want to invest. So we really have to think it about it from how is wealth inequality getting so much bigger? You know, I think it can be directly linked to these unicorns. And I think I, I would add to that, that, you know, the, the SEC four or five years ago now changed the laws and allowed um, hedge fund, private equity, venture capital guys to go in and solicit funds directly from 401k managers. And now all of a sudden, these 401k managers can turn around, uh, you know, and be asked and solicited by these hedge fund and private equity guys who are now getting into unicorns, right? And now those managers are playing with working class Americans' money. You know, they're they're playing around with it. The 401k managers don't have the sophistication to, you know, 
try and deal with the complexities and the risk factors and mitigate the risk. They just see, oh, cool, my money is getting put in, or rather my client's money is being put into SpaceX or, you know, these companies have the potential to skyrocket in value. And we know for a fact, you know, based on some great work out of Stanford, that these unicorns are largely overvalued. They are. A lot are worth more than a billion dollars, but they're not worth as much as they say they are. The Domo case that we were talking about earlier that settled. Domo, when they went public, they revised their valuation and cut it down by almost 50% before they went public. That's probably why the, you know, the, the option holder wanted some information because he knew that the company was not worth as much as what they were saying. And you know, if we see this pattern of risk over and over and over again, you know, the more fairness is, the more we works we see out there, these information rights are going to become more and more important for working class Americans. Well, and I would just like to emphasize what John said. You know, it is possible that your retirement fund that you just kind of check the boxes on and don't pay attention to is invested in some of these unicorns that when they go public are worth half, right? So it's possible that, you know, this unicorn goes public, it is worth half of what we think it is, and you see your personal 401k balance drop. So while this we are talking about relatively sophisticated corporate law stuff, um, this does impact everyday people in a way that you just aren't even aware of. Uh, now, one last question for both of you. We've kind of thrown a lot of information at people, um, you know, lots of things to watch out for. What do you recommend a prospective employee does? They've got a bunch of Silicon Valley offers on the table. What can they do to protect their rights? John, do you want to start on this one? Yeah, first and foremost, read your contract. You know, ask for a copy of the contract. Make sure you see it. Make sure you read it. Um, It's very helpful if you can get a lawyer and talk to the lawyer about it. You know, ask counsel and say, do you think I should sign this? You know, help me evaluate the risk. That's what lawyers are good at. Yes, we're good at mitigating risk for our clients, but, you know, that works both ways. We're not all just, you know, corporate hawks out here trying to protect these companies. There has to be some amount of information out there and you can ask for it. It's your right to ask for information before you, you know, sign away that information, so to speak. And one more thing I always tell people. Do your due diligence. Talk to people who work at the firm. Know what you're going into. Are people complaining? Are they mistreated? Are they getting information, not getting information? Are they happy about working there? Okay? You could tell. Once you start talking to people, you know, you'll be able to tell right away whether you should accept it or not. Now, also think about, right, because usually you're going to get comparable uh, offers, right? What's the timeline? Ask, what's the timeline to liquidity to IPO? Do you have private liquidity plans? Know your options. Information is power. Educate yourself on these things. And pick the one where you feel like you want to go in in the morning. I always say that. Okay, life is short. Pick the one where you enjoy to walk in the morning. And I would just close out by saying, you know, be careful about too, about too good of a thing, right? If you are taking you know, half of what you should because you think this company's a unicorn that's about to go public in a year or so, I would be careful about that, right? You know, the salary should, even with stock options in a company that could be the future Google, your salary should not be that disparate. It should not be that big of a difference. Like stock options and the possibility of going public should not make up so much of your compensation that you are suffering to work somewhere. So just be very, very careful. 
particularly, and I would I would add there, stock options used to be, oh, well, we have no cash. You know, we can't afford to pay you. These companies have the cash. They can't afford it. You know, so why, why are you losing, you know, half your salary just for the option of being on a roller coaster? Right. I would say think of a stock option as a bonus, not the income. Exactly. I like that. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, thank you both for appearing. We literally did not get through everything because we could talk about this stuff all day, but I think we helped to give people the basic information about what they need and how to protect themselves. Thank you all for tuning in to Getting Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcast anywhere podcasts are played, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We also repost them on the Voice America Network website, and we have a YouTube channel called Getting Common. Feel free to send me emails to the show page, and you can reach out to me on social media. I'm at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you again for listening, and thank you again to my guests. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.